Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pekulski. Today's guest, Ian Mitchell, is an inventor, biochemist, pharmaceutical developer who specializes in anti-aging technology and peak performance. Ian is a previous guest of the show and an absolutely brilliant, brilliant human. He's one of the guys that I most look forward to talking to because he's always working on something that's incredibly cutting edge. Ian works with NASA scientists. He works with Olympic athletes and many top tier performers from every different walk of life to ultimately allow them to get superhuman progress in what they do. Ian is a biochemical genius, nothing short of it. The last time we spoke, he said he had six different things written on his whiteboard that he wanted to accomplish in his lifetime. And I think he's getting closer and closer. This guy's nothing short of remarkable. You're going to love this conversation. Uh, it's definitely a deep dive. It's really, really engaging. Ian is an amazing, amazing, articulate man who's got so much to give to the world. He does some amazing work with uh, David Sinclair, who you guys know is the god- godfather of longevity. And we talk about that in the show. We talk about his new experiment with Wizard Sciences, his new uh, supplement line, which I'm super excited to dive into. Ian is one of the gentlemen who's really pioneered the work with Carbon 60. If you know anything about Carbon 60, we're going to talk about that today as well. So thank you very much to our show sponsor for today, Bubs Naturals, where you guys know they're providing the highest quality collagen. And now if you don't know why you have to take collagen, the reason I personally take collagen every day, which is interesting, it may not be what you think, So we need a lot of animal meat, specifically muscle protein. It tends to be high in the amino acid methionine. And if your methionine to glycine ratio get off, it can actually dysregulate some of the body symptoms or some of the body systems. So specifically like taking away things like um, the development of collagen elasticity in the body or collagen overall in the body. So by consuming uh, a balance of methionine and glycine, and glycine is very prevalent in collagen, it tends to make the body a little bit more resilient for me anyways, at the level of the joints, at the level of hair, skin, and nails, um, just making those things grow a little more effectively. So it's very important if you're eating a lot of animal protein, specifically muscle meat, to make sure you're consuming some source of glycine and collagen is a very, very good way to do that, especially to support all of the systems in the body. Collagen is also very useful for glucose tolerance. So specifically taking some collagen either after you train or before bed can really help to control blood sugar. Somebody who has issues waking up in the middle of the night, I'll often prescribe a little bit of collagen before bed, which seems to help regulation of blood glucose in the night and allow you to sleep through the night. So if you're someone who has any desire to have really strong hair, skin, and nails, ultimately balance out your methionine ratios, methionine glycine ratios, so you can optimize health uh, and ultimately, ultimately optimize your insulin resistance. Head over to muscleintelligence.com slash bubsnaturals and get hooked up with the highest quality collagen that exists on the planet. And also don't forget while you're there to pick up their MCT powder as well. MCT is an amazing energy source that goes directly to the mitochondria to produce energy. So if you're someone who needs a little kick, if you're someone who drinks any coffee and you ever put things like cream or almond milk or anything in it, MCT powder from Bubs is absolutely a gift. And you can thank me later. One more time, that's muscleintelligence.com slash naturals and get hooked up with 20% off when you use the code MUSCLE. Enjoy the show with Ian Mitchell. Hi, Mitchell. Welcome back to the show, man. As I said, uh, just as we logged on here, I think you're the most interesting man I know. You're always up to some of the most interesting things. Your incredible science mind is truly a gift. Thank you for joining me again. Hey, man. I'm happy to be back, man. It's good to see you. 
Yeah, so great to see you. So I think it's been probably two years since we spoke. I think it was just pre, I'm not going to say the name, the, the CV, because we might get we get, might get censored. So first, you it seemed like you kind of left the old company you're with. At least that was my perception. I did. Yeah, so I'd love to hear about what happened there. Uh, yeah, so um, kind of a, a difference of approaches. I I wanted to push the envelope a little bit more in terms of uh, what I was doing just scientifically and kind of optimize what I was working on. And so, you know, kind of scientist versus uh, accountant, if you will. <laughs> so slightly different approaches to running a company, right? So, um, yeah, I, I kind of... Uh, the things that I've been doing on the on the same front on the C60 up front with Wizard Sciences, uh, I took the basic things that I had worked out, you know, almost a decade ago. And then rather than just kind of letting them remain static, I started really amp things up. I shifted focus in terms of like looking at different ways to upregulate bioavailability. And then instead of just kind of doing what I was doing before where I was blocking blocking system loss, uh, I really started focusing on how do I upregulate the electron transport chain and hit different complexes in it so I could bump up the amount of energy across the entire system. And so, you know, because personally, I had been doing things for a while where I was taking, you know, 2.4 grams of NMN and resveratrol daily, which which is a pretty chunky dose. But Of each or together? No, of each, of each one. Yeah, which is, again, a pretty chunky dose. Yeah. Um, you know, I know a lot of the guys, um, they only do about a gram a day, and that's kind of the cap. But when I when I looked at all the data and I kind of sussed out what the animal studies did, I did this thing called allometric scaling, where you look at kind of like the surface animal or the surface area of the relative volume of the, uh, of the organism, and then you adjust it. And so for someone my size and basically your size, um, it was, you know, 2.4 grams a day was kind of the, the minimum effective dose to yield the peak benefits. And I couldn't find any difference between doing 2.4 grams a day and five grams a day, um, which, which the gastrointestinal effects of doing uh, five grams of NMN and resveratrol is, uh, how shall we say, not fun. Right. Uh, <laughs> Cleansing, it's purifying, we'll say. It's a, <laughs> Yes, it's a very purifying experience. Um, so I, I shifted back to that, but but I really did notice a difference, right? Like you you feel that uptick in energy when you're doing that kind of stuff. And I noticed some other changes when I would look at um, testosterone levels in men that were doing the combination of all, it was spiked up massively. Mm -hmm. So I had, I think one guy who was um, 75, whose levels were over a thousand, which wow. is- insane. That was, that was the first kind of thing where I thought maybe that's just anomalous. Maybe there's something else confounding right. the variables. So what was the Delta though? What was like, did, did we see a bump from a certain thing to a thousand or he was just well, like standing at a thousand? Yeah. So he went from, you know, in the like low hundreds to over a thousand. And then I actually, I just saw one a couple of weeks ago that went from, you know, like 400, which for somebody in their fifties was good to 1100. Um, from NMN and resveratrol or from C60? Well, no, actually, so it was the combination of NMN, resveratrol and C60. So kind of oddly, when when those things couple and I and I'm still actually sussing out the mechanisms, um, but I, you know, I could feel the shift in myself, but I didn't quantify it. And then I started looking at other people's blood work because I help a lot of people out who have cancer and things like that. And so I'm privy to a lot of blood work. And when you see somebody's blood work go, you know, 72 year old male go from, you know, 300 during chemotherapy to over 840, wow. you go, whoa, 
what's going on? You know, the, the, and the first time it's an anomaly, the second time you start kind of questioning it, the third time it's a definitive pattern. Right. And so after I kept seeing it, I thought, God, this is, you know, this is worth noting. So I've been working on that and I've, I've been doing a lot of other things in terms of, you know, just kind of amping up the energy cycle and trying to optimize things. Uh, and also looking at the form factors, because I know that, you know, I still do it, you know, almost a decade later, you know, where I'm swilling back oil with C60 in it. And mainly just because the results, it's, you know, the data is kind of incontrovertible. I can't really argue with the data, but I'm still not a huge fan of sucking back that much oil. So I've been working on form factors, you know, encapsulations and powders and all sorts of stuff to try and get the same effect with lipolized C60s, but make it a little bit more pleasant and palatable. So I don't want to assume that the listener has one listened to our previous two podcasts and they definitely should go back and listen. But if you could refresh our, our listeners' memory on what carbon 60 is and ultimately what uh, effect they may expect in the body. Yeah. So carbon 60 is an allotropic form of carbon, which is the fancy way of saying uh, it's another configuration of carbon atoms. So you've got diamonds, which are just carbon atoms clustered in tetrahedrons, amorphous carbon, which is just a group of carbon atoms, graphite graphene, uh, which is a monolayer, like a single flat two-dimensional layer of carbon atoms put together in little honeycombs. And then you've got fullerenes, which are kind of, in this case, spheroids. So they're either, you know, ellipsoids, spheroids, basically like circles, cones, soccer balls, kind of stuff, you know, ovals, that, that, that sort of stuff put together all of the carbon atoms. So the one that I play with primarily is carbon 60 or Buckminster fullerene. And, and it was named Buck, Buckminster fullerene because it looks like an old school geodesic dome and so the uh, the guys who named it kind of as an homage to bucky fuller called it buckminster fullerene and it's 60 carbon atoms clustered together in a sphere and the technical shape is a truncated icosahedron which is as we would know it a soccer ball so so it's basically you're playing with nanoscopic soccer balls and the the benefit um is there's actually, there's a tremendous amount of biological benefits. What's funny about it though, is originally when it was discovered, and I say discovered kind of loosely because it's been around for 14 billion years, right? Since, since the very inception of the universe, the stuff came out pretty early on. Um, but uh, I think actually NASA pegged it at 13.8 billion years old, but but it's always been here. We just kind of found it and went, hey, look at this. And, and the three guys that actually discovered it, they synthesized it using lasers, but they discovered it. All three of them got the Nobel Prize, um, of which there's only one fellow who's still alive. He's a, a professor emeritus at uh, Rice University named Bob Curl, who's like a super nice human. Um, but anyway, the initially kind of the take was it's not going to be a biological thing, right? It's going to be an industrial lubricant. Because, you know, it's a little nanoscopic bearing, right? You've got little marbles that are, you know, 1.1 nanometers wide. So it's very lubriscous and can be used to lubricate anything. And so people thought, yeah, it's inorganic stuff. We'll use it for that. Maybe we'll use it as a delivery molecule because it's got a cage and you can tuck some things in the cage. But then about a maybe 12, 15 years ago, some guys started playing with oils with it and found like, hey, look at this. Lo and behold, if you hook an oil to this little carbon molecule, it'll pass through cell membranes. And so when it does that, normally it's totally insoluble in water, but when it passes through cell membranes, it separates from the fat and then it flows down and it 
localizes in the mitochondrial membrane. And when it does that, it knocks out oxidative stress load. So the net effect of that is you end up with this ridiculous bump in ATP production. Um, and so we were getting 18 to 58.3% boost in ATP. And that's, that's crazy. Those are huge jumps. And so again, kind of going back to what I've been doing lately, those jumps were, were massive, but I, you know, not, not leaving well enough alone thought, how can I ramp that up? You know, let's, let's see what else I can do. Let's see if I can get it up even more. And so that's kind of where, that's where we are now is taking that basic molecule and looking at how much we can enhance physical performance, not just by blocking oxidative stress, but by using that as kind of a backbone so we can figure out how to upregulate things. One, one of the more interesting things on the NMN resveratrol front is when you just consume those guys, uh, very frequently, a huge chunk of it just gets knocked out in your GI tract, right? Like stomach acid just eviscerates that stuff, breaks it down. You, you don't get it. It's not terribly bioavailable. The way I'm doing it is I actually wrap it in this kind of nanoscopic buffer solution and that block degradation of everything. So you end up with a lot more of it in your system. And hence, you know, you feel this boost. Actually, I noticed more of a shift when I stopped doing the 2.4 grams of each a day and started doing much less, but doing it inside the serum so that it wouldn't break down, which is, which is great because you don't end up with, you know, GI effects and you end up with the same net benefits, but you don't have to consume as much. And that, and honestly, that stuff is not cheap. You know, it's uh, NMN is kind of a pricey supplement. Yeah. So last we spoke, uh, we went deep on carbon 60 and I tried it a lot and I actually experienced great, um, great effects. And then I started getting people coming out saying, Hey man, there's some negative data on this. So I'd love for you to kind of just bring us up to speed on, on what the the, the anti-C60 people might be saying and then whether or not it's accurate. And so I don't remember exactly what the argument was, but I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the argument was that uh, there's a preponderance uh, of tumorigenesis, right? So that that it will give you cancer and, and spread out tumors, which is odd uh, because there, a paper came out about a year ago and the group that, uh, the group that published that paper um, it struck me as strange because they were uh, also trying to buy my patent rights uh, simultaneously uh, <laughs> for anti-cancer effects and for uh, cellular enhancements using the same molecule that they published this big paper on, uh, saying that it had all these uh, these tumor effects and uh, tumorigenic effects. And you know, not that everybody plays in the pharma world, but you know, if you, uh, if you want to get people off the path, uh, I think all you really need to do is just say, ah, it causes cancer. And, and everybody goes, oh no, we can't play with that. Well, the reality is, yeah, if you do, if you do things the, the improper way, 100%, you can cause all sorts of cell membrane cracking. You can, you can really damage things. Um, but you almost have to be intent on doing that or just be a complete moron and not know how to handle the components because it's, you know, it's uh, carbon 60 is highly photoreactive, right? So if it gets hit with photons and a certain bandwidth, it starts pumping out a thing called singlet oxygen and singlet oxygen is a highly unstable oxygen configuration and it'll just start ripping electrons, right? And that, you know, cell membranes crack, cells die, cells get, you know, malformed proteins, which lead to aberrant stranding, which leads 
to cancers. And yeah, you can definitely do that. But it, it was just kind of ironic to me that these guys published this big paper. Um, you know, we're trying to negotiate to buy my patent rights. It struck me as a little peculiar. But if you really want to get everybody else off of the, uh, the developmental path, because a lot of people have been working on things, because it's a, it's a really great molecule. Um, and I, I don't know, I can't think of many better ways uh, to uh, take people off target than to just say, oh, my gosh, it causes cancer, we're all going to die. Uh, when in fact, oddly enough, even when I worked with P53 knockout mice, which are tumor mice that have the P53 tumor suppressor gene extracted, those guys quite literally did not get cancer, which is bizarre, right? That's that's actually hugely anomalous. You you use those mouse or those mice in oncology because they're tumorigenic. They just spontaneously produce idiopathic tumors and they pop up all over their body. It's really sad. And when I did a an entire cohort of them with with the C60 in a lipolyzed format, none of them got cancer. They all died of old age. The median the median lifespan was 93% beyond what it should be. And you know, we didn't have to use a control because there are literally so many tens of thousands of those, in this case, heterozygous, um, you know, mice, P53 knockout mice, that the mortality curves are incredibly well-defined, like incredibly well-defined. You, you know, pretty much when your wild type or heterozygous or homozygous knockout mice, when they're going to die, because everybody's played with so many thousands and thousands of them. And these guys didn't get cancer, which struck me as really bizarre. And also that it made me think, God, when, when those guys published that paper, they are either a just really trying to knock people off the beaten path or B uh, they really don't know what the hell they're doing in the lab. And so, you know, I, neither one of those is really great options. Um, but that's, that's kind of my assessment. So the last time we spoke, you were actually heading down the path of using these molecules to, I don't know if, if um, I don't, want to, I don't want to misuse the terminology, but to maybe support people who are already being treated for some type of cancers. Uh, yeah, that was that was the intent. And we're still doing research on it. I'm still doing a lot of research on it. Um, it's it's difficult to do do a lot of that stuff. It's it's much easier to do, um, you know, canine oncology and things like that, because the uh, the criteria for moving into humans is is really stringent. And it's pretty tricky. Um, I, you know, all I can say is I, if it were someone that I cared about in my family, you know, my, my kids uh, that had an issue, I know exactly what I'd be doing, um, you know, and I would definitively be using it. Uh, and, and actually, I'm not a big fan of chemotherapy or radiation, but depending on the type of cancer, I'm a huge proponent, you know, especially with something like carbon 60 in your system, because it, it knocks out a lot of the detrimental effects of chemo because it is renally and hepatically protective. So your liver and kidneys get buffered against a lot of the toxic stress load for most chemos. And it's also uh, a good agent for dealing with radiation. Um, you, you, in fact, I mean, there's studies using even kind of a lesser version called fullerenols, where it was an aqueous thing and bound to water through a functionalization. Um, using those, it still uh, allowed mice to get hit with, you know, a, a lethal dose of radiation and just keep right on humming. I'll, I'll actually, I'll send you that study. It's kind of bizarre. Love to see uh, it, yeah. yeah, but, you know, eight to 11 sieverts of radiation and the mice were, you know, take a lick and keep on ticking like a Timex watch. So you brought up kids. Now, would you say this is not a molecule that is a problem for kids to take? They're able to take it? Uh, I, you know, again, 
consult your medical professional, I can't make a recommendation. Uh, however, I will tell you with my kids, I've had all of them take it. So, and I, you know, and I, and I was kind of my own guinea pig on safety, but the, the safety profile is off the charts. Um, you can't find the lethal dose. Uh, you know, you get sick from the oils that are bound to it before you can actually hit any sort of toxicity threshold. I mean, it's carbon for Christ's sake. You know, it's, it's quite literally what you would have uh, put in your system to detoxify yourself if you had some sort of poison event, you know? Um, yeah, I, I think it's incredibly safe. In fact, I wish more people took it because I think in the environment that we live in, where we're constantly bombarded with, you know, environmental toxins and chemicals and EMF stress, I wish everybody took it, you know, I mean, honestly, I wish we lived in a world where you didn't really need something like that, but right. that's above my pay grade. So, so now I'm very excited about wizard sciences, because if anyone in the world should be creating supplements, I think it's you. Uh, you're obviously you're, you're a professor of biochemistry. I'm not sure exactly where you're teaching, but I know you're, you're still doing that, right? Yep. Still teaching. Yeah. So yeah, I'd love to hear about wizard sciences, specifically what caught my ear was like neural RX. I'm like, all right, now you're talking my language. How do we make my brain work better? Yeah. So neural RX. Okay. Th this one actually really excites me. Um, one, because I don't have any apparent cognitive deficits as of yet, though we all have a little bit um, just because, you know, we're, like I said, we're constantly bombarded with things and I carry a cell phone and that, you know, that affects voltage gated calcium ion channel flow in your brains. So, you know, you hold your phone next to your head and it does have an effect, even if only temporarily, though, I think it's probably more persistent than that, but it, it still has an effect. So we're all getting kind of blanketed, but the neural RX thing is uh, really very cool to me because I, I developed it um, for people with Alzheimer's. That was kind of the intent. And uh, I was actually a, a, a colleague, a neurosurgeon uh, sent me a note from another doctor that we work with pretty frequently. And, and they said, you know, we're pretty convinced you can, you can crack this egg. And I, and I thought, well, that's preposterous. I've never even worked on that, but I thought, and they actually, they specified, you know, three weeks to try and figure it out, which was kind of a challenge to me. And I'm, I'm always down for a good challenge. So I thought, you know what? Okay, fine. I'll, uh, I'll play with that. It's three weeks. Let's see. So I started looking at the, the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's and what I came to as a conclusion was, this isn't actually a disease. It's a protective mechanism. And, you know, there, there are other functions in your body that are very representative of that, that same, you know, principle. Um, you know, people who carry weight around their midsection, it's generally because um, the, their body is maintaining a very strict balance in pH. And so when you eat too many things that cause a, a trend towards acidity, your body wraps those components in fat cells and, you know, sticks them around your midsection so that you're safe and your blood pH doesn't vary. So you've got this kind of lacy band or should be lacy band around your midsection called your omentum. That's O-E-M-E-N-T-U-M. And your body sequesters things and fats and pops them there. And, you know, people end up with visceral adipose tissue and things like that. And you can see that people's midsections swell. What you don't see, and this is kind of my hypothesis, is when people's brains are exposed to things like P. gingivalis or heavy metals, uh, the brain similarly has uh, a mechanism for sequestering those things so that they don't actually cause a detriment. And it wraps things in tau proteins, beta amyloid plaques, all of the things that are the hallmarks of what we would you know, normally think of as, ah, they have Alzheimer's, they've got all this buildup. 
Now, my thought was, okay, well, if this is a protective mechanism and the problem is effectively, you know, things are being sequestered, but the trash isn't get, getting taken out, then it's going to build up. And you won't notice it at first because you've got a lot of additional capacity. But then at a certain point, it hits kind of a critical threshold where all the systems start to get mucked up, right? You know, you're, you're gumming up the gearworks and neuronal potentiation doesn't occur properly and you can't get a signal from one side to the other. And so I thought, okay, well, how do I break down all these different components that I think need to need to happen? So I put in, you know, NMN, resveratrol, CoQ10, PQQ, um, you know, a whole host of things, uh, Seredia peptidiate. Yeah. And that one, interestingly enough, that one was actually really pivotal because in order to get components like that out of your body, you have to break them down. So that specific proteolytic enzyme uh, there was some good research from Japan where they showed that it actually passes the blood-brain barrier because the size is is permissible to move through that. It's a you know effectively for something that size is just a big permeable membrane, so it moves through, goes in, and it starts to actually break down the tau proteins in the beta amyloid placking. And when you do that, if you upregulate energy production at the same time and you drop cytokine responses, then your body triggers kind of the normal repair cycles. And so what happens is the glymphatic system in your brain, which is this you know, very small component that we really we've only known about for a couple of years now, uh, gets triggered and it opens up while you're sleeping and it uses interstitial fluid and cerebrospinal fluid to basically come in and kind of wash your brain. Well, if you have these little components that have been pulled off of the mass of aggregates, then it cycles through, pushes those out, they, they go out and they end up in your lymph system and you just process them out as opposed to just leaving them forever where they build up and build up and build up and then become an impediment. So what you're basically doing with the neural RX is you drop inflammatory responses across the entire brain. Then you upregulate the cleaning cycle as you're breaking down the components into manageable sizes. And then the, the last part of the puzzle was to uh, deal with the neurons specifically. So interestingly, the compounds in conjunction like this upregulate the production of new neurons, right? Every day you produce neurons, but what happens is your body goes through a process called synaptic pruning. And that's because you're always trying to hold yourself in some sort of ideal homeostatic balance. Right. So, and, and you know, this, like when you're working out, you really have to pack on, I mean, it, it takes focus and effort to put additional muscle on because your body wants to thin down to a certain size that it finds to be genetically efficient. And so I know you personally had to, you know, really think and make everything super programmatic and really dial in to figure out how do I keep this additional mass up for competition, right? Because it doesn't happen naturally, you know, likewise, your brain is constantly looking for the most efficient way to stay at peak performance and peak performance is really defined as not what we think of as peak performance, but what it actually just has to do to hit the minimum necessary energy output to keep your life functioning and to not keep done. you alive. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it, it doesn't give a damn if you're feeling really sharp and super on point and your acuity's up. It doesn't care. It just wants to make sure that, you know, organism gets to eat berries and keep living. That's basically it. And if you can do that, you're golden. So when you want to try and shift, you know, your neural potentiation and get things firing more effectively or actually change the the aggregate density of the neurons and add more, you really have to think about it, right? So the compounds here put 
pump out, uh, you know, they stimulate your body to pump out new neuronal growth at a rate of maybe two to three to one compared to BDNF and NGF1. And for those, you know, yeah, so it's brain-derived neutrophic factor and neural growth factor one, which are the two components that your body uses to, you know, kick out new neurons. So this outpaces those, but your body being the brilliant organism it is, goes, ah, these things are, you know, horribly inefficient. And from, from a biological perspective, neurons are horrible, right? So your brain accounts for two and a half percent of your body mass, but it consumes 20 to 25% of all of your oxygen. Those aren't, those really aren't good ratios, right? So it does what it always does is, you know, synaptic pruning where it goes in and basically says, ah, these guys are too consumptive for resources, kill them. And literally every day you pump out new neurons and every day, barring, barring a change in your habits, those neurons are killed off. Um, so with this, since you need some additional capacity, if you're incapacitated from say Alzheimer's or dementia or something like that, you start getting these new neurons and they start pumping out more and more rapidly, right? Your body wants to do what it's going to do, which is synaptically prune. So what I always tell people is, you know, if, if they're dealing with somebody that has a cognitive deficit is in the third week after they've started taking the compounds, put them under neural load. They need to do something. Even if they're incapacitated, you just have to change their daily habits a little bit so that they can start to do something different. Because the way the brain responds is if you're doing something entirely different, it, it will say, ah, I need additional networking capacity. I'm going to go ahead and grab a couple of these neurons and allow them to be persistent and stay. If you're doing something that's familiar, even if you're pushing yourself on it, but if it's something familiar, it'll go down the same pathway that it's myelinated heavily before and done before, right? That's, that's why you can't teach an old dog new tricks, theoretically, unless you do this kind of stuff and modulate neuroplasticities because your brain's efficient and it wants to fire down the same pathways you know, that it's always used. So this just kind of shifts that. And the, and the other thing that's a little different is, and this really helps with getting around blockages in, in proteins that have aggregated in a detrimental way is the morphology of the neurons, which is just, you know, the structural shape of the neurons that are made are different than usual. They're, they're longer. So from axon to axon, from end to end, you know, passing through the neuronal body, if normally you'd have a neuron that was say one unit, this would be two to three units. So they're actually kind of a longer patch cable. And that allows you to span around areas where you did not have firing happening before. And so people, people, and I've seen it at this point multiple times, again, not making any claims. This is anecdotal because we haven't done a, you know, double blind placebo control trial, which, uh, <laughs> which, you know, at some point here in the near future, hopefully we, we can get to the point where we're able to do that. But I've seen it anecdotally over and over and over with people who have been massively debilitated where they start to get their function back and their cognitive abilities come back. And, it, you know, I mean, that's honestly, that's why I do what I do, right? You know, is I want to, I have a, the capacity to do things in a little different way and help. So I do. And uh, the first time that actually happened, it was a, a friend's father and he was in his 90s and in a home with Alzheimer's completely debilitated. And uh, at the 10 week mark, he checked himself out of the nursing home, went to a grocery store, bought razors, bought food, came back, shaved himself clean, started cooking. Um, it was a somewhere between the eight week mark and the 10 week mark. And the only reason I don't know for sure is because my friend was on vacation. Um, it, something 
shifted massively. I guess he got over some sort of critical threshold and regained cognitive ability, which was miraculous. I, I mean, to me, it seemed miraculous. I mean, the science is there and I understand the mechanisms, but still, when, in this case, when somebody gets their dad back, you know, they were non-functioning and suddenly they're, they're back and talking and conversing and making lists and they've done things that they literally haven't been able to do for three to five years. Uh, you know, that was fantastic. That's, uh, how, do you, how do you potentially quantify the difference in lengths of the neural growth saying it could be potentially longer? You, you can actually, you can scale them. I mean, you can actually look at the neurons and scale them. So it's just like through a microscope or how, how exactly are you doing that? Yeah. yeah. Look at them through a scope. You can actually quantify them and see, see the size of them through a scope. So you guys are yeah. doing something like in vitro or how's it? I just want to understand it. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. That's in vitro. So basically we take, you know, take neural cells and then apply them to neural cells and look at, look at the growth of the neural cells to show the different morphology of the neural cells. Right. So, and it's, you know, when you, when you're culturing those cells and you're growing them, they take in the nutrients. And in this case, some of the nanoparticulate goes in and it stimulates the way that the next iterative cycle of cells propagates. And it's just different. It's very strange. I'll send you some studies on that too. It's, it's kind of, yeah. So cool. So I know, I know also you've made some comparisons or drew some comparisons between, uh, carbon-60 and hydrogen, molecular hydrogen. And again, they're not obviously similar, but I'd like to hear your thoughts because I know molecular hydrogen is kind of gaining some traction. Yeah, I, well, molecular hydrogen is, in my opinion, great. It's, it's uh, I, I think of it more as a signaling molecule, right? Because it sets up a lot of signaling cascades. They're really super beneficial in the body. Um, and also it gives you a, a big boost of energy. At least when I did it, I noticed a, a jump in energy. Um, I think the use case is a little different. A lot of times, some of the things that you hear being done and said about carbon-60 versus molecular hydrogen are really similar. And I think the the affect is similar, um, but, uh, or rather, I think the effect is similar, but the affect is a little different. The mechanisms that you arrive, or that you use to arrive at the same point are a little different. Um, I don't actually, because I've, I, I, I guess about four or five years ago, I started playing with molecular hydrogen quite a bit and it didn't seem like the two things were synergistic, you know, to use the molecular hydrogen in combination with the C60. In fact, in a lot of the work that I was doing with uh, oncology stuff at the time, uh, I actually noticed some, some detrimental effects because you end up with uh, saturation of some of the cages and it, it blocks the effect uh, that I was actually trying to achieve um, with the carbon 60 in terms of oncology things. Uh, so for that purpose, I, I kind of keep them separate. Like if you're going to do molecular hydrogen, I'd say do C60 one day, do molecular hydrogen the next day. I wouldn't actually use them in combination. So you talked earlier about the electron transport chain and trying to ramp up energy production. So I'd love to for you to go down that path because we went down kind of the path of Alzheimer's and, and neural RX. And curious now how you're kind of tackling uh, ultimately energy production, because I think I've heard you say it, and I, I say it all the time, is the limitation in all life is energy production, right? And I think we yeah. look at electrons, we look at electricity. I know you've talked about Tesla a lot in the past, so I'd love to have us go down both those paths. Yeah, so one of the things that I find really uh, kind of curious is how over time, uh, you know, energy potential drops inside the cells, right? So if you block, like I had alluded to before with the C60, if you block the oxidative stress, then you end up with a net boost. And so when you start looking at 
the different complexes to even enhance that, you can look at all sorts of effects. Like I've looked at uh, photonics, right, with red lasers and red lights. And um, then I've looked at, you know, PIMP and using magnetic fields. And it's what strikes me is, you know, organisms aren't just biochemical or biological in nature, right? They're magnetic, photonic, electromagnetic. We have all these different components that, that actually comprise a, a person, right? So I've looked at different things, like in the case of uh, looking at follicular cells, right? Trying to stimulate hair growth. Uh, I noticed that it, you had to do a couple of things, right? So drop out inflammation, but then add energy into the cycle, right? So, you know, I did my kind of standard bag of tricks there with, with uh, nanoparticles to upregulate energy production, but then also to hit one of the other complexes, I was trying to advance the cell cycle artificially. So I'd use red light uh, because what happens is red light at say 670 nanometers oscillates cytochrome and you, you have different components on the electron transport chain where you'll have certain molecules hit a, hit a point and then they have to be, you know, a forcing function, move them to the next point on the chain. And in this case with photonics, you, you bump a nitric oxide molecule and you move it and an oxygen molecule will cycle in and replace it. And when that happens, you're using photonics to artificially stimulate the cell cycle and force it along. And the net effect of that is you're taking exogenous, just meaning outside of the body, exogenous energy, and you're pumping it in and getting an internal endogenous biological effect. So that's one way to do it. Um, you know, using CoQ10, you can amp up the potentiation in different complexes in the electron transport chain. Um, and I'm actually huge on that note for, for those particular complexes. I'm a big fan of Shilajit um, just because mm -hmm. it's crazy bioavailable, right? Like if I take, you know, you take a, a gram of CoQ10, you're not going to actually utilize the gram. You're probably going to get maybe 300 megs of it, but you take 300 megs of Shilajit and your body actually processes it and converts it to 1.5 grams of, you know, bioavailable CoQ10. Oh, really? I didn't realize yeah. I was like. Same pathway. Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah, it's, uh, that's one of those kind of interesting things. I think that's why Shilajit actually has all sorts of beneficial effects because it, your body breaks it down and utilizes it where it needs to go. And in that case, you know, it's part of the electron transport chain. Um, you know, PQQ is another thing, and this is pure loquinoline quinone is, uh, a stimulator for mitochondrial biogenesis, right? Which just means you're pumping out new mitochondria. And the other component of energy production is not just trying to eke out more power out of every little unit, but actually trying to get more units in there. And I always joke that it's, it's like you can take a Ford Fiesta and you can pump it up to 500, 600 horsepower. You're probably going to blow the motor probably not going to go very long or you can get yourself a really snazzy b12 mercedes that has you know standard 600 horsepower at its base threshold because it's humming along just because it has all these additional cylinders so the cylinders kind of equate to how many mitochondria you have normally you have you have four trillion or so but if you uh if you just up that number one percent you've got a huge jump in energy production and so that's kind of that's sort of the same thing as looking at the different pieces of how you boost it. So you, you boost the efficiency, you drop the inflammatory response, you block oxidative load, and then you simply add more of them, which is, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of obvious, but you know, that's uh, not always done. 
That's awesome. So you talked a little bit about the electrical impact of say PMF, or there's a lot of people out there talking about the electrical kind of signature of a cell and maybe negative 50 millivolts. And I, I, of all the people that I've sp- spoken to on the podcast, I'd love to have you kind of give us your theory as to one, the impact of things like Tesla coil and the PMF and the biocharger and all these different other modalities out there that exist and ultimately the utility of them. And so if we could start maybe at like a, what they're doing at a cellular level so we can understand that and then move toward um, utility. I know it's not really your area of expertise, but I trust your opinion. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, actually to develop the uh, the product biocharge that I did, which, you know, the little ozonated oil capsules, um, basically the, the equipment that I ended up building to do that was almost identical to what the guys that are doing the biocharger uh, it's basically the same. No story. relation, right? No relation. Yeah. Between biocharger and biocharge, uh, different companies, but similar in that, you know, a lot of it was derived from Tesla and, and what Tesla worked on with, you know, the coils um, and which, you know, his namesake, right? The Tesla coil and looking at resonant field effects and how you can stimulate things, right? A lot of the, a lot of the effects, if, if you use high frequency, high voltage uh, fields, it definitively has an effect on your physiology, right? And you and you can feel it. Right? I mean, if you look at um, if you look at dark field microscopy, you know, like real time blood work going on, you can see the effects that are happening as field effects. And that's that's actually it's one of the things that really um, is intriguing to me is the quantum biological components of these things. And you you probably didn't see this, but I was um, at the the biohacking conference, um, Dave Asprey's uh, last year, I did a lecture and it was on uh, a company that I do uh, scientific advisory for called Leela Quantum. And they have a thing called the quantum block, which sounds, you know, a little woo woo because everybody throws around all, all the guys playing with Tesla coils always throw in terms like quantum this and quantum that. And I, I don't know that everybody's really using the same uh the same uh phrasing for the same effect you know because i i can look at it and go these guys are talking about like five different things and they're all calling it quantum you know which is great for marketing but as a scientist you kind of go really really okay well whatever um so one of the things that was interesting though is at this conference uh these guys said can you do a demonstration to show that our block, which which isn't magnetized, it isn't electrified, uh, it's just these plates where they have been modified at a quantum level, and they say it impacts the effects of um, you know your physiology, and it, it impacts the effects of uh, foods if you ingest them, and it sounds like kind of a ridiculous claim, but I said okay, yeah, I I can do that. I can actually do a, a real live demonstration in real time so people can see it. So what I did is I, uh, I got a can of crab meat and brought a, a fella up who I know, biohacker Todd, right? Todd Shipman. And Todd has a horrible shellfish allergy, like really, really bad. And so I did what effectively is a dermal stamp test, right? You know, when you go to the allergist and they prick you and, you know, put different compounds on and see what created a histamine reaction. So brought Todd on stage, a derma rolled his right arm. And, and the video of this is online. It, uh, because it was so odd that everybody came up to the stage afterwards to look at his arms. So I derma rolled his right arm and I put crab juice in it and flink, you know, instantly big histamine reaction pops up and, you know, he's got a, he's kind of itchy and he doesn't want to itch and he's worried that if he itches, it'll, it'll start spreading. And he's, you know, kind of flustered because his arm's welting up. Um, and then I put, you know, the can of crab meat inside these pieces of metal and just let it sit there while I explain kind of 
you know, what's going on with quantum behavior, which sounded a little, uh, again, a little frou-frou, but then I took the can out very casually, Derma rolled his left arm and put the juice on it and nothing happened. So on one arm, massive histamine reaction on the other arm, no histamine reaction. And didn't make sense. It was kind of everybody kind of did the wrong, you know, like the dog that heard a new sound look. Um, because we all think of those things as being biochemical effects, right? And affected by compounds that are interacting and there's some ligand interaction and things bind. Yeah, that happens, but it's it's all correlative and not causative. What's really going on is if you look at the ocean from, you know, many, many thousand feet up, it looks very smooth. And we have this picture of molecular dynamics and molecules as being these little round guys that, you know, have a nice, pleasant electron rolling around the outside. Not at all what it's really like, right? There's all this dynamic interaction. And it's kind of like if you looked at the ocean from a foot up, you'd see the little white caps and everything rippling. And that's what's really going on is there are all these sub subatomic interactive waveforms that are occurring, which is why when you're playing with things like, you know, the biocharger or you're using Rife machines or Tesla coils or PIMF mats, you can affect things because you're sending out these fields and they're propagating in waves, even though we don't generally see them and a lot of people don't really feel them, those waveforms interact. And what happened in the case of the, the crab meat is the waveforms interacted. And when you take a substance into your body, the waveforms in that interact with the waveforms in your body. If it's constructive interference, you don't have a problem. If it's destructive interference, you have a problem. And I kind of liken it to like Velcro, right? If you've got the hook and loop system of Velcro and you rub those things against one another, you get tremendous amount of friction. But if it's just loop loop, you get no friction. It's just constructive interference. And so when you take something and you kind of smooth the outer edges, if you will, of the molecular dynamics, then you can take a substance that you have an allergy to and ingest it. Because what you really have is you have a problem with the waveform of that substance interacting with the waveform of your substance. And, you know, I mean, we all think of ourselves as solid, but the reality is you'll never actually touch or come into contact with anything, right? It's all re repulsion of electron clouds against one another. You know, my hands don't actually touch. What I'm picking up is I'm picking up the the force of the electron clouds pushing against one another. And that's what I perceive as solidity. But it's all really just kind of this, uh, you know, very fancy pattern of interference and subatomic and submolecular dynamics going on that I think of as my body. Because, yeah, it's a I different thing. the coolest thing in the world to conceptualize that. So I was, I was looking at a book the other day called... Um, Gosh, I forget, but something, something to the effect of like uh, what actually exists in the air, right? So like we look in front of us between, you know, me and the computer and I see there's nothing there, but in reality, there's so many things there and to actually explore, you know, everything at this call it quantum level, call it some atomic, uh, atomic level and maybe view things from that perspective as it seems like you do, I think is the, maybe the most interesting thing in the world. Like uh, it just, it just puts a completely different spin on your perceived reality. Yeah. Well, see, that's that's the thing that excites me about it is I, I like in science, you, in my opinion, um, you know, you have to be kind of agnostic about where the truth takes you. Right. If you see that experiment and you can repeat that experiment over and over and over, well, that breaks the whole idea that the reaction is just some sort of histamine reaction based on the molecules. That can't, in fact, be the case. And, and I always liken this to like, 
you know, pre von Leeuwenhoek when we didn't have microscopes, you know, the prevailing idea back then. And this is what people really thought is like, oh, it's spirits, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, like the humors, the spirits. And because they didn't have the technology to assess it, and that guy comes around and he builds a, a device and looks and goes, holy shit, oh my gosh, there are little bugs down there. What, what's that about? Right. You know, and it, it's kind of what it reminds me of is there's this far side cartoon um, that Gary Larson did. And it's these two sharks swimming next to one another and all these people running out of the water on the beach. And one shark looks at the other and says, dude, your dorsal fin's sticking up. I wonder how long that's been screwing things up for us. You know, <laughs> and it's kind of like, all these things have been around forever and it's, it's that obvious, right? Like it's like the fin on the shark. It's that obvious, but we don't really notice it because our perception is, you know, looking in a different place. If we don't have the tools to see something like that with our, our normal natural perception, like our eyes, we just don't know it's there. And so again, science is, it develops and it's really, it's where technology is at a point on a linear progression, right? Like the best scientists in the world is only going to be able to tell you what is with what mathematics or what tools of observation he has at his disposal then, you know, 500 years before the microscope, you could hypothesize that there was something there, but you couldn't actually prove it. Right. It didn't mean that your hypothesis was wrong. It just meant that, you know, the proof wasn't there. Actually, a lot of Einstein stuff wasn't able to be proved for, you know, 60, 70 years after he had passed away. And it was just kind of, you know, like he was thinking that far ahead of the curve. And I think, quantum biology is kind of akin to that. It's really what's going on. And so things like PEMF mats that set up field effects, it definitively has an impact, right? Um, Even if you look at just the mechanics of something like that, you can look at voltage-gated calcium ion channels and say, okay, your cells have a balance, right? They've got, like you said, you know, um, the the millivolt uh, balance in there and, and they pump out a certain amount of energy. And there's an ionic potentiation across the membranes and it moves in a specific way and it's very balanced. Well, when you put in uh, external things like, like your phone that have a, have a field effect, it shifts that balance. And so the influx and efflux of the different ions ceases to function the way it would in a natural environment. And that throws things out of balance. One of, one of the interesting things with the virus, you know, that everybody talks about is there was a, a study that was, being done and it was it was filed with the uh with the fda i believe um and it got pulled and it was looking at the effects of 5g on said virus well a lot of people thought like oh this is some nefarious horrible plot uh i would posit that that's not at all the case the the difference is 5g can actually elicit a pretty intense response because you're pumping out a heavy signal that changes voltage-gated calcium or voltage-gated calcium ion flow. And what happens there is when the pH changes because the ions aren't moving across properly, you end up with a lower pH and a much higher acidity, right? Well, higher acidity means more protons. More protons means more food for a virus to pull from, right? Because that's that's how that works, right? The virus goes in, it, you know, the mRNA will, you know, pull, pull protons and then start pumping out, go up to the caps and start pumping stuff out. And it's a cycle, but it, it all is um, predicated on the idea that it can suck protons. And if you suddenly use a device that allows more protons to aggregate, then yeah, there's going to be a correlation between those two. That, that's, uh, I don't know if you've seen any of the articles about the use of uh, Benadryl for people with long COVID. Nope. Uh, I'll, I'll send one. You can link it in the show notes. But yep. uh, yeah, so people are noticing that there is a, 
there's an odd correlation between um, a, a positive effect from using diphenhydramine hydrochloride, which is Benadryl, um, for people that have COVID uh, or long COVID, right? And I would, uh, I would guess that that is probably because diphenhydramine hydrochloride competes for the consumption of protons inside the, uh, inside the inner mitochondrial membrane. And if that's the case, if you pull those protons away, then you simply have fewer protons that allow for viral loading. And, you know, it's, it's just a balance. So what could we be doing then? I wasn't going to go down that path, but what could we do, be doing on a consistent basis to one, mitigate 5G, two, to alleviate this proton load other than Benadryl? Hey, so, well, you know, um, personally, I, I'd take, you know, 50 migs. If, if somebody had, like I did, I had COVID twice and, you know, and I got myocarditis from it. It really affected my heart tissue. Um, I would take 25 milligrams of Benadryl in the morning and 25 milligrams at night. And it, again, I mean, I'm speaking personally, that's what I did. During the event, not, not just prophylactically. No, not prophylactically. Yeah. During the event. Now you could take it prophylactically and, and in theory that that would have a really good prophylactic effect because again, you just would kind of inhibit the replication cycle a little bit because of the lack of available fuel. Um, yeah. So that, that's what I would do on that front is just uh, take, take some diphenhydramine hydrochloride. It's uh, you know, a good thing for you. And, and papers are starting to get published about that. People are starting to see uh, pretty big shifts because of it. Is there anything we can do just like off top of, my, top, top of your mind from the perspective of mitigating 5G other than Benadryl? Yeah. Um, and and I'll, I'll send you a study on this that um, came from a it was a, it wasn't double blind, but it was a blinded, um, sham controlled trial, uh, using the quantum cards, um, from that company Lula that I, that I work with. And when you look at the dark field microscopy, you can see a negation of the detrimental effects of 5g on a cell. And in fact, Lula for me, uh, L E E L A it's Lila L E L A Q.com is their site. Sorry, say one more time, Leela L-A-2? L-E-E-L-A-Q.com. Pull it up, check it out. Yeah, um, those, they have these things. I actually, I quite literally carry one on me all the time, uh, which, you know, it's this, this guy right here. It's this little kind of tube. And basically what it is, is you've got these, if you open it up, you have these little titanium spheres, these yep. guys that have been charged at a quantum level. And again, that sounds like kind of a strange claim, but you know, I'm happy to, to show it. And I, I can even send you the video of the, uh, the conference at the biohacking conference. Uh, so you can post that too, because it, it was such an odd experiment, but it was a really great way for people to see that there are unseen things that have an impact that we just don't really have the tech to describe yet. Um, but, but it doesn't mean it's not there. We just haven't quantified it yet. We can look at secondary and tertiary effects of those things, but we just can't get kind of to the point of primacy. We can't quite look at exactly what it is yet, but we know it's there. So I know you've been doing some work for our future when it comes to our, our space travel. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah, actually. So a couple of, a couple of things on that front. So, 
I developed a, uh, a tech for uh, shielding for gamma radiation, uh, which is which is pretty cool because it's a lot lighter than lead uh, by a, uh, quite a bit. And it's much more effective in terms of its ability to shield. And the, and the reason for that is if you leave the magnetosphere, you basically get blasted with a ton of, you know, gamma rays and those the CMEs and things like that, the, all the, uh, the emissions really break down your genome, right? When they hit you, they, they really kind of eviscerate your genetics. Now for the, for the first generation of people, it's not going to be a big thing. Like if you leave the magnetosphere and you go camp out on Mars, not, not really such a bad problem for the first generation, the second generation, not going to go so well. Uh, and the third generation really probably, we probably would not even look exactly the same. I mean, we'd have thalidomide style, uh, degradation occurring. So, so I, I just wanted to buffer that. So I came up with a way to, to do that, that mechanically, um, for spacecraft that leverages uh, a lot of different principles, like the Meisner effect, which is kind of a, a principle about superconductivity and exclusion of magnetic fields. And so there's that component. And then I've been working on uh, some drugs that will hopefully be, you know, used by astronauts to do the same thing endogenously so they can pr protect their body internally from the effect of radiation. And then, and then the, the stuff that's really cool, kind of the skunk works at uh, Wizard Sciences that I've been playing with is uh, different sorts of propulsion systems. Because frankly, I think strapping yourself to a giant bottle rocket is really probably not the most thoroughly conceived idea ever. <laughs> you know, I mean, Werner von Braun came up with that stuff over a hundred years ago. Nobody's really changed it, or at least not that we're, you know, very aware of. But when you see things like those, uh, the videos from the, the, um, the aircraft carriers where they're tracking little tic-tac things and you go, well, somebody figured it out, you know, somebody or something obviously has better tech. So if it's possible, it means we can do it. We just may not have done it yet. So I've been working on some propulsion systems and things like that. And actually with, with a fair degree of success on, on one of them. So that's the kind of stuff that, uh, I'm really jazzed about because basically one of the things that we developed in the lab or I developed in the lab um, is a propulsion system that would work like a champ for deep space travel. So just Can you share a little bit. I'm so curious. Like, what would it be? Um, it's sort of like there's there was a thing that was developed called an M drive, um, but nobody could ever really conclusively show that it worked or didn't work and really get the really get the thing to function properly. And I would. I would think that perhaps they were just approaching some components of it a little bit inaccurately, but in theory, um, it's very doable. And, and people thought that it was uh, not possible because it violated, you know, uh, some of the, the laws of motion and, and it doesn't, it's actually, uh, they were just kind of missing the point. It, it, um, it actually very much falls within all of the laws of motion. It's just the, the forces that people were thinking that it was playing with everybody's so tactile, right? You know, they, everybody thinks of things in a tangible format. And if you start looking at relationships that exist in space and nature, but don't really affect us biologically, sometimes it's just hard to wrap your head around things and go, Oh, those two forces in nature are actually interrelated. We just don't feel it. So we just don't, don't think it's that way. So, um, yeah, I, I ended up just kind of uh, working out some equations that allowed me to, to see that 
there were some subtle forces in nature that are that are really actually working and then experimentally show them over and over in the lab. So yeah, we've got a, a handy dandy little engine sitting in the lab, which, which honestly was kind of funny because when when I tell the guys that work for me sometimes that I need things, um, you know, they kind of go like, okay, now, now they're sort of conditioned. But I told one of them, I said, listen, I need you to go to the store and buy six large microwave ovens <laughs> and then come back to the lab and rip them apart for me. And at this point, again, you know, the guys kind of know like, okay, whatever. Um, but you know, that's, uh, it's always funny because I, apparently the guys at the store said, what do you need six microwave ovens for? And you know, the guy who works for me said, I, I don't know. I'm just supposed to buy them and rip them apart. I don't know. You know? So, um, so where, let me, let me ask this. I know you're an avid meditator. Where do these ideas come from? Is it, is it just like you see a problem and you have a desire to solve it? Or is it like I'm sitting in meditation and I get this epiphany that goes, Oh, something comes to me. Like where, how do you, is it getting downloads or what has it come? Yeah, actually it is. It's oftentimes it is a lot like a download. Um, yeah. And it's, I would say, um, the meditation was really clutch. Like it was super, super pivotal for me in terms of just opening up my, my mind to allowing me to, to kind of delve a little bit deeper in things where I wouldn't have seen connections. I saw connections. So that was important. Um, yeah, I don't really, a lot of the stuff that, that I do, I mean, yeah, it's coming through me, but, um, I can't really take credit for it because some of it just comes through so fully formed and so fast that, I, I really actually think that sometimes you just tap in and the ideas are out there in the ether. And, you know, I kind of feel like I'm a glorified radio, you know, I, I tune in and, and the information, okay. yeah, the information comes through. And, and honestly, there's uh, I was writing about this a while back, uh, because there are a lot of things historically where people don't realize that two people came up with the exact same idea at the same time. Yeah. And I, I would think that, in reality, as, as a species, what's, what's happening is, you know, people think you know, like we're pushing ourselves into the future. We're pushing forward. We're making this and we're, we're pushing, we're pushing, we're pushing. And you hear that constantly. I actually think that's not accurate um, it, because it is in nature, right? That's, that's an inaccurate statement in nature. Uh, the wind doesn't actually blow past you. It gets drawn past you, right? So it's being pulled past you because you're standing there and somewhere behind you, there's a low pressure center and things are being pulled into it. And in accord with that, I think the way that we evolve as a, as a species is the ideas and the path that we're going to move on is already kind of inherently laid out in front of us. And the reason people get ideas at the same time is because when that idea is ripe, when it's ready for us to be pulled forward into the future, some of us just tap into those things and then we go, Hey, I got one, you know, and then we, you know, bring it to the culture as a whole and it allows us, you know, to move forward as a species um, or, or as a planet, you know, the totality of the planet, because we're not just isolated as a species. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I really think that's more it. I think you tune in, like you said, the, the antenna thing, you know, you, you tune in and you get the signal and then, you know, like, Oh, okay, great. My next that. question was like, are you an alien? That was the next question because your, your level of productivity, well, it sounds like your level of productivity is absurd. So I'd love to hear what your daily routine mm -hmm. looks like because like you're getting a lot more done, at least from, you know, what, from our, my perspective, than most people get done in their entire lifetime. Um, 
Yeah. Well, when I, when I opened my lab like eight, nine years ago, I, I wrote six things down on the board that I wanted to solve before I died. And I know I've, I've told you about it and, and that's, it's still aging, cancer, you know, clean water, global warming, free energy, and superluminal travel. And the reason it was the six of those is because I felt like, and this sounds, you know, kind of contrite, but it's, it's really not. I mean, it's not just some, you know, Hallmark card thing is life really is a gift, right? And the, the thing that makes me feel the best is contribution to other people. And I think, I think we're all kind of really inherently wired that way. Like you feel best when the people that are in your life that you love, that you care about, when you, you know that they're okay, you know that they're safe, you know that they're taken care of and you're loved and, and that love is reciprocated. Um, that's really kind of what drives people, right? And I, I do actually do a tremendous volume of stuff, but I, I don't sleep a ton. I meditate, you know, to kind of negate how much I actually have to sleep. And um, I eat really well and I try and take care of myself. I probably don't as well as I could, but in that balance, I've looked at, okay, these are the things that I want to do and I want to contribute before I die. And I think that they will really help greatly. Um, and just as fate would have it, my intent is really clear. And I think that's part of what allows me to tap into those things. If, you know, if my intent weren't really purely to try and help, I don't think I'd be able to, uh, to get kind of the access key to, you know, <laughs> to, to look at that stuff, but it really is. I, I mean, I want to help. I want to contribute as fate would have it. I seem oddly tooled to be able to tune into the, some of these things. And, and sometimes it comes through as a completely clear shot. And so it has the, the appearance on the outside. Uh, like I, I just made a thing last week for a project that I'm working on, which relates to my carbon negative concrete. And we, the production in the world, this one component wasn't enough. So I had to design a machine that could outpace the production that everybody's been doing historically. And so I, I did that. But then in the process of doing that, I hit another problem. And the other problem was I, I have to have some sort of flame resistant coating that allows you to be able to touch it. And, you know, what what is that? That, that led me to thinking about yeah, a function called intumescence. And there, there was a guy who developed a product called Starlight ages ago. And his his demo for that was, you know, to take an egg and coat it with this polymer that he had made and then hit it with a blowtorch at 1700 degrees and not cook the egg. And for me, I, I needed that thing, but this guy apparently died without sharing the, uh, sharing the information. So I thought, ah, you know, if the information's out there. I should be able to tap in and, and figure it out. So I did that very thing. And, and honestly, sometimes what's kind of funny about this is when you tap in, a lot of times I, at, at that moment, don't actually possess the inherent knowledge of the skills to really understand exactly what it is I'm seeing. So I have to work through the process. It's not that the idea isn't completely formed and ready to roll. Um, it, it's that it's ready to roll, completely formed, but I don't get it. You know, like I'll see a component and go, great. What the hell is that? You know, how does that function? Like in the case of this intumescent thing, two of the components were insanely flammable and it, it made no sense to me. Then, you know, af after the fact, I understood what it was for and how it worked, but I had to actually work through the process of, of making it. But that entire process and the reason it comes to mind took 90 minutes, right? Which sounds, yeah, kind sure. of, right. It's not a lot of time to develop right. something that's entirely different that's going to make the, the machine that I need work. Um, 
but that's actually that's why it has the appearance from the outside of being uh you know a really rapid function i don't know that my rapidity is really any different than anybody else's i think sometimes the information just comes in in a more complete coherent format um so i get access a little bit more rapidly and so my my daily routine you know i just don't sleep a lot but that's because i'm genuinely crazy excited about what I get to do. You know, like I get to go teach a class today to seniors who are all about to graduate with biochem degrees and half of them are going off to med school. And I love the fact that I get to teach them about functions that they probably won't hear about from anybody else. You know, I'm kind of like the, the crazy guy, who, you know, who runs the lab and, and shows them all these strange things. And I only have two required books for reading this semester. One is uh, The Fourth Phase of Water by Gerald Pollack. And then uh, the other is Life on the Edge about quantum biology um, and uh, by uh, John Joe McFadden and uh, Jim Al-Khalil. And and they're really great books, but my, my whole thing is I want people to think outside of the box a little bit, you know, and I, I get excited about that. I mean, I really do. Like, it's easy to run like 18 hours a day, 20 hours a day, if you're absolutely excited that you get to like wake up and go, Woo! you know, <laughs> and so, I mean, that's kind of what pushes me. So, yeah, my day is a little bit different, but. I man, I wouldn't want to be anything else. Why the why the fourth phase of water? Are you interested in so my understanding of the fourth phase of water, obviously structured water with when I last talked to Gerald on the podcast, the very last thing he said, I asked him what he was most excited about. And he said the fact that water we know now has an infinite storage capacity. Have you explored that? Because that seems like something you'd want to explore. Yes, yes, I have. And that's that's actually that's one of the quantum biological effects that I think is really interesting is. If you look at water as just this, you know, 105 degree bond angle between two hydrogen and oxygen, you're kind of missing the point, right? Because it stereoscopically stacks in a crystalline matrix. And it's, it is, it's literally, it's a, it's a liquid storage medium. I mean, which is genius. I mean, not shocking really, because your body by molecular count is over 99% water, right? In terms of the, you know, the number of molecules. So yeah, you have physical memory. I mean, everybody, if you go to a body worker, they know like when they're working out on muscles and go, oh, you've got stress. It's residual from this and this. Yeah. Your body stores stress. Not shocking. Every cell maintains, you know, some degree of its own uh, awareness and consciousness and memory and all those things. I, it's kind of funny because the, the hubris of giving a monkey a brain is, you know, you'll think you, you're the center of the universe. And I don't know how it is that where it evolves, you know, like we, we just have this fallacy that, oh, you have a certain number of cells and then suddenly, boom, you're, you're aware and you're conscious. I actually think that's completely erroneous, but the idea that water is this huge storage medium that allows you to have access to all these resources uh, makes perfect sense. And so that book, I, I like it because it takes a subject that is something that you're infinitely familiar with in the sense that you've been around it your entire life. And then it kind of turns it on its head because he very demonstrably shows that there are so many functions that aren't working the way that you thought they worked, right? You know, like you get a tear on a tendon or a ligament, you get rapid lymph, you know, perfusing the area. What's not happening because of pressure gradient, it's happening because of an ionic gradient and a shift in the balance. And those things are all very testable, very provable. And it's been right there in front of us the entire time. And we just missed it. You know, that's, that's actually why I like that is because it reframes your ability to go, 
am I really seeing what's going on? And that, and that's something I think, and this is why, you know, the meditation thing, I, I think maybe in the future, uh, scientists and, you know, mystics or people who are really approaching it, they're all kind of doing the same thing historically. It's the quest for truth, right? And unfortunately, a lot of times that goes off the rails. Like we have so much scienceism now where, where people treat science like a religion, you know, like the science is in. Now, science is never actually really fully in because it changes. Like I said, it's a point on a line, right? It's a point on a timeline. We only do the best with what we have at that moment. And if you believe in science, you're doing it wrong, right? Like it's not about belief. It's about testing. There's actually, there's another professor that has that, you know, on his door. And, and I joke about this all the time because I walk by and I'm like, really? No, you believe in a religion. You, you don't believe in science. It's a testable, verifiable hypothesis that you do over and over, you know, because the moment you, you drop a ball 5,000 times and you drop it and it doesn't move and it stays hovering in the air, something's changed and you have to assess what that something is, you know? So yeah, the, the science is different. And I like that book because it breaks down the idea that the world around us appears one way, but it could be. And that book does a really good job of showing this. It's all happened in an entirely different way. Yeah. Have you connected with David Sinclair? Do you know David Sinclair? Yeah. Yeah. I really well, actually. Yeah. Okay. You guys are personal friends. Yeah. Okay. Cause the concept of X differentiation to me would be something I'd like to put your brain onto. Right. Cause that's his kind of area of focus now where, I mean, for the audience, like certain cells aren't doing what they're supposed to do at a genetic level. They're becoming different cells. So is that something that's ever crossed your stream of consciousness? Yeah. Well, I know that we, we think about things in terms of uh, mitohormesis. We have some very similar ideas. You know, I think we share the same sort of, sort of approach there. And yeah, and David's a super sharp guy. And I, I, uh, I like his approach there in terms of cellular differentiation. We, we do kind of differ. in I think uh, maybe one fundamental way, I don't actually believe that, uh, all of the information is contained on the physical media. I actually think that there's not to say that there isn't because there nature's uber efficient, right? And the best way to do things is to have the original, to have a backup copy, and then to have a copy stored on the cloud, right? So you write something, then you save a copy on your hard drive, and then you upload a copy to the cloud. And I think where where people stop right now is you you upload a hard copy or, or rather you know onto your hard drive um that's kind of the body right like you have the original and there's a stored copy of what it is on the body but that's subject to degradation right and you you can modify things and shift things i know um i know david's taking one of one of my, my things right now because uh the the olympics here because it's a hermetic um uh, stress activator right so it does mitohormesis and it's it's a, a cert one activator cert two and one activator in addition oh, right. to having resveratrol and so it, it gets really great effects because of that but i think our our difference is i think you, you have copies on your body that are stored um but but that data is capable of becoming corrupted as well I also think that there's a, a record that is extrinsic, that's stored outside of the body, um, that's some sort of uh, uh, waveform reference. And, and I think that's actually a big difference because I think when the degradation occurs biologically, 
if you still have an an uh, an unchecked, uh, unadulterated copy that you can access, and you possess the mechanisms to do that, yeah, you can do that. Um, but if you don't, if you're beyond that point, where do you go to find the mechanisms? Well, I think it's actually extrinsic. So, do, so you that, think, do you think you're able to maintain that level of freedom of thinking because you're not so deeply attached to uh, an Ivy League university? I don't know if you are. I know you're teaching at a no, university now, no, but yeah. it, well, David's like in, in these boxes, right? He can't come out and say like, hey, this 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 field or this, you know, it's it's not provable necessarily yeah, yet. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think anytime somebody says something like that, you get kind of lambasted. I, Rupert Sheldrake is the guy who, you know, really kind of promoted the the whole morphogenic resonance and field effects theories, uh, and actually has done a lot of testing that's shown pretty st- statistically significantly that yeah, that that definitely appears to be the way it's working. It's hard for people to wrap your head around because it's not meat suit related, but it, it's uh, definitely statistically significant data uh, as a result of the experiments that he did. But Sheldrake was the same thing, right? He was uh, trained at Cambridge or Oxford and was, you know, kind of the the preeminent uh, plant geneticist in the world in the 70s and 80s and, you know, kind of fell from grace because he actually had ideas that were outside of the box. And uh, yeah, people don't like outside of the box, right? If you follow a non-traditional path and you're willing to look at things that are different and do it uh, with an eye towards just the pursuit of truth, man, that's not popular. You know, that's the kind of thing that'll have you locked in a tower. Like, hey, turns out, I think we revolve around the sun straight to the tower. You know, I mean, <laughs> you, you piss off the Pope. Um, it's, it's whoever the prevailing authority is at the time. And unfortunately, right now, the predominant religion in the world is science. And uh, science doesn't like to have itself change that much, right? You uh, you, you'd think that it would, but the reality is a lot of things die on the vine academically because they simply don't get funding to move forward. And uh, I, I can't tell you how many papers I've read where I'll, I'll see somebody's either dissertation or a paper and go, Jesus, this is brilliant. Like, this is really like, what a new thought process. Like, it's going in an entirely different direction. And then I, I look to see if I can find any follow-up and there's nothing there. It's just, this, you know, total silence. And it's because they didn't get their next NSF grant or their NIH grant or something like that. And it's, it's, it's a little saddening because it just makes me think like, God, you know, if, if we work together collectively as a species, we'd do so much better, which to be honest, that's why I'm focusing a lot on space travel and things like that is because I have this kind of inherent belief that humanity, if you look at our history, we're always expanding and pushing the bounds, right? We're trying to move forward. We're trying to do new things. And and the times where we seemingly perform the best, at least to to my criteria, which is, you know, where we're, we're helping one another out. We're pulling one another forward. We're, we're being kind while we do it. uh, Kind of the esprit de corps and camaraderie that you'd hope to see in humanity, like the best parts of humanity. Uh, It's when we have a common goal or a common enemy. And those are the things, you know, the space race was a race because we were pushing against somebody else. You know, World War II, lots of countries came together because they had a common enemy. Um, That's so just for better or worse, it's kind of either in-group, out-group sort of behavior. And when I look at it anthropologically, I, I go, well, this is just the way humans are. This is how we play. This is what we do. So 
I'm obviously not going to start some giant war. So I think, you know, that that barring that as an approach, I think the better approach is to say, okay, well, maybe if we focus on a goal that's so much bigger than ourselves, that we all have to work collectively towards it, maybe we'll actually do something good. So Brilliant. So, Ian, you've been more than generous with your time. I'd love to give one final shout out to Wizard Sciences and, and maybe you uh, can mention a few of your products and uh, maybe what you're working on next. Um, yeah. So let's see. So I've got, um, you know, the, the neural RX for, you know, people that have cognitive deficits or for people like you and I that, that don't have cognitive deficits. It's a phenomenal nootropic. Um, I've got the Olympic serum that's there for people who are trying to potentiate better function in their body drop inflammation. And, and that was actually made for guys doing the Olympic trials last year, um, and got phenomenal results for those. Um, and then the things that I'm working on next are, a couple of different form function things where I, where I can get things to uh, where I can get things ingested in an easier fashion so that more people will take it. Cause what I'm looking for is ubiquity, right? I want to get, I want to get the things that will help people out to the most people. And so I've been looking at, you know, how do I, how do I do this in different things that they do on a daily basis anyway? Right? Like if you have to come up with some entirely new process that's additive, it's just like your neurons, right? Your brain is looking for the easiest uh, amount of energy that it can pump out to survive. I don't want people to necessarily have to change their habits. So I've got a couple of things coming out in the next few months that will just be additive to what people do every day where they can just add it to their drinks or add it to this or that and then get the same effects. So I'm looking forward to it. Ian. Thank you so much for joining me again today. So much information. If you want to leave a website or a place where the audience can find it. Yeah, um, go to wizardsciences.com or you can always hit me up directly. I'm uh, ridiculous. Everybody makes fun of this, but I actually do respond to every, you know, any any request for information or help or anything that somebody sends in to me as best I can. It may it may take a little bit because I get a lot of them, but um, I still personally respond to all that stuff. And you know, just go to go to my Instagram. It's at Ian Mitchell One, and uh, yeah, hit me up. I'll. I'm here to help. Thanks very much, man, for what you do and for being here today. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. And that's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining me today as I interview Ian Mitchell. As I'm sure you can tell, Ian is incredibly bright and incredibly effective, isn't he? He's someone who just seems to get so much done in the small amount of time we're all allotted. So he's definitely someone who makes me feel like I'm living small. He makes me feel like I could get so much more done in a day if I simply dream bigger, think bigger, and execute. So if you're inspired by Ian, I'm sure you would love to hear from you on Instagram. If you're inspired by this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast on any platform. You can head over to Spotify, you can head over to Apple Podcasts, you can head over to, to Amazon and also subscribe there. Don't forget to head over and, and like us and subscribe on YouTube. We have so much amazing content coming to you, not just from the podcast, but also things I'm doing in life in general, which is health optimization and muscle building and longevity focus. I want to ultimately inspire as many people as we can and empower them with the knowledge and skill set to live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Ladies and gents, thank you for being here. I understand you have so many options when it comes to receiving your information and you choose to be here with me. Thank you so much. I don't take that lightly. Thank you also for sharing this podcast with at least one person you know and love who wants to live their greatest life in a body they love. 
um, uh, so many amazing guests. For those of you that don't know, the month of March is going to be Muscle Intelligence Muscle Building Month. We're going to really dive into some of the greatest uh, interviews uh, maybe ever when it comes to muscle building. And I'm also going to be giving you a lot of great solo episodes when it specifically comes to muscle building. So if you don't want to miss a minute of the Muscle Intelligence Muscle Building Month, don't forget to subscribe. Have a great day and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.